last Sunday, I introduced a topic. We couldn't get through it all, so I wanted to come back and come to it this week again, and that's hearing God. If you didn't hear the first part of that, I'd encourage you to go back online, uh, go online to our Facebook page or YouTube page, and take a listen to, a watch, if you will, to last week's. But the grand question that we came down to last week, because we looked at the truth that God is always talking. We looked into the Old Testament, we went into uh, God changed his voice as we came into the New Testament, into the Gospels, he became man, he talked to us as a man, face to face, person to person, and then God shifted his voice again after Jesus ascended into heaven and speaks to us in Acts and all the way to today through the Holy Spirit. And the big question is, God's never stopped talking, but are we hearing him? Are you hearing him? You would think, then, if we know that God wants to talk to us and that God is talking to us, that it would be easy for us to hear God, that it would be easy for us to know what He is saying. But the problem is, we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a sort of messed up world, and we've allowed some of that mess of the world to infill us a little bit, to filter into our lives. That's called sin. And because of that sin, it clouds our our ability to hear. It clouds our judgment even. And so some questions might come up. And we ended last Sunday looking at some of these questions, and I wanted to come back to them this Sunday. What if God doesn't, doesn't or doesn't want to talk to me? Now, that was last Sunday's sermon, so I hope you can go back and listen to that. I think he does want to talk to you. But how can I know the voice that I'm hearing is really God? There's a lot of crazy that has been done in the world in the name of God told me. I've had that happen. People come, God told me to tell you this. Really? He didn't tell that to me. You know, but there's a lot of crazy that's happened in the world. History's full of crazy that's happened in the name of God said and God told. So how do I know that God really told me that? Another angle, how do I distinguish what God is telling me from the millions of screaming voices that's yelling into our ears all the time? How do we distinguish that? How can I know that what God says is right? What if I misunderstood what God told me? What if I get it wrong? Or here's another thing, what if I mess up what God's asked me to do? Am I in trouble? Am I going to blow the kingdom? Is God going to get mad? What happens if I mess up? What if I'm not up to the task? What if I goof it up when I do go about the task? Or what if I just don't want to do what God told me to do? Has anybody ever faced that one? Yeah, I think we all hit that one every now and then because God's always asking us to do things. And every now and then, he's going to push your buttons. Every now and then, he's going to ask you to do something. You're going to be like, eh, it's going to be like a Moses moment there. I don't know that I want to go talk to those Egyptians. I don't know that I want to do what you're asking. I know you ask, but I don't know that I want to do that. So if God is talking, if he's speaking, and he wants to be heard by us, you would think it would be rather simple, but often it's not. The problem is, is that sin has entered our world. I brought with me, I'm just going to leave this up here for us to be looking at all morning. Let me see if I get the bubbles out. It makes it a little prettier. Okay. 
You would think that talking to God would be as crystal as this, crystal clear, to be able to hear from him, that the channel would be open. Anybody ever um, listen to a radio station and you start getting too far and it starts getting static? Even the digital, digital just drops out, but it gets all staticky. Um, you know, you would think that listening to God would be like listening to a station that's right in town, a local station, easy to hear. But sometimes it just isn't. Sometimes things enter our lives. And one of the big things that's entered all of our lives is sin. So here's sort of what happens is rather than being able to hear straight up from God with crystal clarity, because the sin happens in our world, the sin happens in my life, all of a sudden what should be nice and clear and easy to hear starts to get very muddy, starts to get sort of difficult to hear. So if this is the case, if this is where we're living, how do we resolve this? How do we come to a place where I can start hearing God? And how can I trust that what I heard from God is reality, is what he's really saying? So that's what I want to talk about this morning. And we're going to look at a couple different things. We're going to do some things this morning. I'm going to give you some fun illustrations. I'm also going to put on the teacher hat this morning. We're going to take a little look at, at history. So I'm going to, uh, you're going to be students. I'm going to be teacher this morning a little bit as we look at history. And uh, we're going to answer some of these questions that I raised last Sunday morning. So how do we clear up the water? How do we clear up this muddy mess between God and us? Father, help us as we move into this. And I pray that we won't hear me this morning, but we will hear you. This week, God, as I've been studying, as I've been polling materials, I've been looking at scriptures, I've been bringing this together, Father. Uh, I, I was trusting in you to speak through me. So may we hear from you this morning. May you send your Holy Spirit yet again this morning to talk to our hearts, to reveal your truth to us. And Father, I pray that as a church, more and more people in our church will clear the muddy water and will be able to begin hearing clearer and clearer from you so that we can be a church that is fully on mission with your kingdom. We are a church that is experiencing what you want us to experience, that we are doing what you're asking us to do. And so, Father, just speak. And as we said last Sunday, we want to be Samuels. Father, I hear you. Your servant is listening. God, that's the cry of our heart. We want to hear you. We want to commit to listening to what you have to say. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Amen. I want to give you a couple ideas as to how to clear this water. And here's the first one. It's sort of a no-brainer. Makes a lot of obvious sense. As much as it's possible with you, ruthlessly eradicate sin from your life. Do you all pretty much know what sin is? Just raise a hand and say, yes, I know what sin is. Okay, pretty much everybody understands what sin is. Get it out as much as possible. Get rid of the sin out of your life because sin is always going to clutter and, and clog up your ability to hear from God. And you may think, ah, this sin's over here or that sin doesn't really affect anybody. It's a private little thing that happens all by myself. Nobody else knows about it. And you may think you can hide that sin, but I'm telling you, that sin will mess up your communication between you and God. Let me give you an illustration of this. About a year ago, um, that 
thank COVID's been good in some ways. Michelle and I bought a house. We moved out here. It couldn't have happened had COVID not hit, but she was off work. She could help get our house ready. Uh, so we were able to do it all, and we move out to our house. Some of you have been out there. It's a, a little bit, it's not necessarily bigger, but it's just better rooms, the way that everything's set up. So we can have people over because we love to entertain. But we get into our house, and about the end of last summer, we noticed we weren't the only ones living there. We had uninvited guests, and all of a sudden we started to realize, and you, you know, they, you, don't, you don't see or smell those things when you're touring a house, but when you're living there, all of a sudden it was like, oh, something's not right here. It doesn't smell good. So if you all, you who came over at the end of the summer, you would notice there was always candles setting out, okay, and they were lit for a reason. It had a bad odor. And so I started to realize we have some uninvited guests in the house. So I started going through the attic, and I found old mice. I found live mice up in the attic. And one day, we're out. The worst of the smell was down in the living room where the fireplace is, and we had the TV, sort of family room area. And that was the worst area where it just had a nasty old house, bad smell to it. And so one night, we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, as we're sitting here watching television, we hear... And I'm like, oh, we got them. So I, I've been trying to, to, you know, seal up the house. And they were in between the walls, between that little storage bedroom area and the living room, a mouse was down in there. And I'm like, doggone, that's where they're coming in and out. And so I started working all around that side of the house and looking at all the uh, sill plates and, and trying to find out where are these critters come. I could not find a hole. And yet... Over a week went by, and we're still hearing. And so I decided, okay, he's not going to win. And so I cut a huge hole in the wall, not on the living room side, but in the bedroom side, so you all can't see it because we closed that door. And I cut a big hole in there, and uh, sure enough, I found where this mouse was, and I figured that was all an open cavity, and that's where they were coming out and going in the attic. I was shocked at what I found. What I found was the hole wasn't in the outside wall. The hole, the hole was actually in the floor joists, and all the mice in the house could get into this hole, and they would climb into this hole, and they would fall down into the wall. And there they would stay until they passed, shall we say. I got, I got the live one... He's no longer with us, okay, but he's gone. And I saw what was down there. There was 20 to 30 mice at various levels of decay that were about this deep in that wall cavity. So they've been going in there forever. I get the vacuum, not Michelle's vacuum, okay. I got my shot vac, and I start kaboom, 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 sucking those suckers out of there. It stunk. I was about gagging because it smelled so bad. Finally, I got it all out. I sanitized. I deodorized that thing. I, put ble I piled the bleach on to kill anything that might still be in there. And it took about two to three months. But finally, our house started smelling better. It's sort of amazing. What, oh, the other thing that happened, that hole, by the way, was right next to the air return for the living room family room. And so every time the furnace kicked on, it was sucking all that nice mouse smell and shooting it all over the rest of the house. So we're looking all over trying to find my. And here was the pot. We got that pile gone, and all of a sudden, the house smells great. You can come over. We don't have to burn candles anymore. 
I tell you that because that's what sin does to our lives. We may think that that sin is hidden and over in some wall that's been sealed up and covered over, and it's way back there, and nobody knows about that but you. But I'm telling you what, there is no sin in your life that won't seep out. And it will affect you. And it will affect your relationship with God. And so the very first thing I want to tell you this morning, as you're trying to hear the voice of God, you need to ruthlessly work at eradicating sin from your life. Now let me give you some really good news. Number one, that's why Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do this work on your own. The Holy Spirit is sitting there in your life and he's pointing out where the dead mice are. He's like, go look over there. Go look over there. This is what you need to deal with. And there is some sin in our lives that is so ingrained in who we are outside of a supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit, you are not going to be able to beat it. I'm sorry. But the Holy Spirit coming in you begins to work in you, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit gives you power to overcome these different sins, even the ones that are unbeatable in your human regard, in your human strength. Number two, God gave you the church to help you on this journey. The church has a purpose. It isn't just a nice social institution for us to hang out and high-five or air-bump people. The church has a purpose, and one of the purposes of the church is to help you in your journey overcome those sin issues and help you on your walk. James, one of the authors and leaders of the New Testament church, in James chapter 5, he penned these words, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The church is here to help you walk closer to God. And one of the greatest things the church can do is help you in regards to accountability. There's something about being involved in a small group, be it a Bible study, a discipleship group, or be it even a book study, just a small group within the church. There's something about being involved in that that has some natural accountability to it. If you choose to get involved in discipleship, we have a very intentional discipleship program in our church. We will ask you some questions, and we will allow you to even choose some questions because you know you better than anybody else. And so in my discipleship groups, we have a couple things we always ask, but then it's like, what do you want to improve? What do you feel the Holy Spirit's leading you to work on? And then everybody gives their list, and every week in my discipleship groups, we read the list. Okay, so-and-so, did you do this? So-and-so, how did this go? So-and-so, are you still struggling with this? And it's a yes or no. And we're not here to beat you up, to criticize you, to point a finger at you. We're here to encourage you and say, come on, do better, or good job, way to go. We're here with you. How can I help? How can I pray with you? God gave us the church. And finally, I want you to hear this. Just because you sin does not mean God stops talking. Some people think, oh, I sinned, so God won't talk to me anymore. No, you are not that big. And you are not that powerful. God does not base his talking on your sin. Now, you may not be able to hear what he's saying, but he doesn't stop talking just because you messed up. He keeps on talking you may not be able to hear him. So I want you to hear that. Oh, no, I did this, and so God will no longer talk to me. Mm-mm. 
That's not true in Scripture. He tells us he is constantly talking to his people and to his children. He was constantly talking to the Israelites. They weren't always listening, and sometimes they got themselves in big trouble. But God was always talking. Okay, let's move on. So if God's talking, if we're getting the sin out of our lives, and I hear God's telling me something, how do I know, how do I trust that God is saying that? How do I know it's not, you know, how do I know it's not Satan whispering in my ear? How do I know it's not one of the million voices that's calling for my attention? We have millions and millions of voices calling at us all the time right now in our society and in our culture. Try this one on because I'm sure some of you have seen it. The picture comes onto the television and it shows a bunch of sad puppy dogs. Their eyes are downtrodden. There's goo coming out their eyeballs. There's bugs flying around their face. The dogs never look happy. They always look like this. And then some usually female voice comes on and says, you can make a difference. You can save a dog. And if you send us your check, you'll be able to save so many dogs' lives for X amount of dollars. Now, only if you are not human does that not affect you. If you can look at that and say, shoot the thing. (laughs) Shucks, I've done that. (laughs) That pulls on our heartstrings. And you know what? We have those voices around us all the time, and those voices are saying, I'm speaking for God, and I want you to listen. Do what I ask you to do. Send me your check. Shucks. The church does that. If you send us your check and put your hand on the television, God's going to bless you. We can do that. If you send us your check, reach out to the television. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not going to go there, okay? Don't believe in that. There are all these voices coming at us all the time. How do we know that the voice that I'm hearing is the voice of God? And how can I trust that what he's saying is true? This is a long-standing historical problem. And this is where I'm going to put on the teacher hat a little bit. This is not a current phenomenon that just happened in our culture. This has been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, even in the Old Testament times. So let me give you, putting on the scholarly hat, the, 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 uh, the teacher hat a little bit, let me, I want to walk you through, this has been labeled the Wesleyan quadrilateral or the Methodist quadrilateral. It comes from John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. Uh, it, we get our namesake from him as part of the Wesleyan church. Uh, so it comes from him. He actually got three of these ideas from the Anglican church. But let me set this up. Let me show you why, why this is so important before we get to it. In the Old Testament, God gave a couple rules. Does anybody know about how many there was in the basic? Ten, okay? So God gave the Ten Commandments, and those Ten Commandments were basic principles to guide all of life. You had the Israelites who had come out of Egypt, and God, not God, the Egyptians ordered everything in their lives. They told them when to get up, when to go to bed, what to do while they're awake, what to eat, what not to eat. The Egyptians did all of that, and now they're freed. Now they have no idea how to rule themselves, how to have self-government, and so God starts by giving them ten basic guiding principles, ten commandments. 
And then beyond that, God spoke with Moses, and the whole book of Leviticus is then dealing with those Ten Commandments in very practical ways. And so basically, it's how to live as a society without Egypt telling us everything. That's the book of Leviticus, a little dry, but it's a lot of what God thinks as to how to establish a godly society. If you want to understand how America should be run, go study the book of Leviticus. That's God's telling us, this is how you run a great society. And so throughout the times, though, during the ages, not everything fit perfectly into all those commandments and into all those laws. And so what got established, and I believe it's a God-ordained thing, the scribes were the ones assigned to the task to detail out how those rules played into everyday real life. So let me give you a for instance. The Ten Commandments tell us that we're to honor the Lord's day and keep it holy. Well, everybody needs to eat. Is eating on the Sabbath work? Because you're not to work on the Sabbath. So is eating work? The scribes would then take that and look at the situation and say, okay, is eating work? Well, we got to eat. God gave us manna and quail in the Old Testament. We were traveling. Um, he gave it to extra the extra day so we didn't have to go out and gather. Oh, so is getting firewood to make the fire for the food considered work? Or should you have that all gathered on Saturday or for them Friday? And so does, is that work to gather firewood? If gathering firewood is not a problem to eat because you have to eat for a family, what if... You invite a family friend over. What if you invite your neighbors over so you're cooking a little bit bigger meal, you have to have a little bit bigger fire, you have to have a few more sticks. How far can we go? And then, okay, if that's okay, what if I invite the whole synagogue over? If I invite everybody from the tabernacle over, you know, now I'm feeding like 50 people, is that a problem? Or what if I am to put on a whole wedding banquet and we're gonna get married on Sunday and have our wedding banquet on Sunday or, or on the Sabbath? Is making all of that food considered, and the scribes would sit down and they would figure all those details out when jesus came to earth the scribes were still doing their work all the little details of the law were being figured out by the scribes now the problem was the scribes at this point had gone south they were they had forgotten the heart of the law and were now living only by the rule of the law and so Jesus basically pulls the whole law back to where it, come, where it needs to be. And Jesus himself said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to, walk, to wipe it out. I, I came to fulfill it. And what Jesus does in his ministry is he qualifies. So Jesus now becomes the scribe when he's on the earth. And he now says, this is how this works out. Let me give you a for instance. You have heard that you're not supposed to commit adultery. That's the law. But I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. What's Jesus doing here? He's being scribe. He's detailing out how this law affects everyday life. And so Jesus did that during his years of ministry here. He reinstituted the heart of the law. And then Jesus gave to the church the work of, of scribe. And so one of the duties of the church is to figure out how the laws play out in everyday life. So this is today, this is what we're facing, this is what we're dealing with, and the church then looks at this and says, okay, that applies, this applies, you need to hold to it, you don't need to hold to it, you need to live loosely, you know, or let that, let that loose, you know, don't be bound by that. And so that work was then given to the church. 
Peter by the, or Paul, by the way, if you look at the New Testament, a lot of the New Testament written by Paul was the church scribing the Old Testament law and the law that Jesus brought back forward. That's what Paul was doing, bringing clarity to what all those laws meant. Peter jumps in there, James jumps in there, various church leaders jump in there, and eventually what happens, the church leaders with the authority of God become the scribes for the everyday Christian in the church. And sometimes, by the way, if you read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the church got it wrong. And Paul had to back up and say, whoa, you're off, you know, come back. You know, I'm an apostle. I saw this. I know what, where, where God is, and I know what Jesus was teaching. And you're going off, come back over here to center. And that was then the authority in the church's role is they sort of brought the church to center line on a lot of these rules. That's why the New Testament really lays out how we're to live in church, in community, um, how we're to live amongst each other. Eventually, Peter became the pope. And that's what he was, the father of the church. He was the first pope. And for the next 1,500 years or so, that system worked great. The pope made the call for God. So on all of these things, let me give you a four instance, because you might be thinking, well, what's this got to do with us? Donkeys don't speed. Right? Ooh, my donkey's going to kill somebody because I'm going too fast on my donkey. Donkeys don't speed. So, is breaking the speed limit a sin or not a sin? The Bible won't tell you that. You're not going to find that in the Scripture. If it's always a sin to break the speed limit, then what if you're in an emergency? Still a sin? Um, what if you're late? Still a sin? If it's not a sin, is five miles over okay? Because, really, we got a lot safer cars now, you know. People shouldn't let their kids play on the street. They should know that now, you know. So is five miles over okay? Ten miles? How about 50 in a residential? Is that okay? Oh, that's okay. Who makes that call? It's a law. That was the work of the scribes. That was the work of the Pope. For 1,500 years, that worked really well. And then there was this little thing that happened about 500 years ago. Some of you may have heard this or read this, or if you're Catholic, you know this. It was the Protestant Reformation. And the popes had gone south. The leaders of the church had gone south. They were making bad calls that weren't scriptural anymore. And so there was this reformation that happened. The Protestant church comes out of that. And then all of a sudden what happens, though, is this Protestant movement, which we are a part of in the evangelical world, this Protestant movement no longer has the Pope calling shots for the church. And so we're left in Timbuktu. Who's going to make the rule calls? Who's going to figure out what's right or what's wrong? We got the guiding principles of the Bible. We have Jesus teaching. But how do we know if this situation that I'm in is right or wrong? Well, comes along John Wesley, some of his contemporaries as well. Martin Luther developed some of these kind of ideas as well for the churches he was leading. And what the Wesleyans came up with, what, not the Wesleyans, Wesleyans being John and Charles Wesley, what they came up with was the class system. And this is fascinating. If you were part of a Methodist church years ago, you were automatically part of a class. You didn't have a choice. 
If you're going to be part of our church, you're going to be part of this class. And the classes were the church divided into three or four people, always men with men, always women with women. And you always asked. Every week you sat down and you had to answer these four questions. The first three were very common questions. The fourth one the Wesleyans added, and that's where we're going to jump off this morning. But here's the four questions. Every week you had to answer this. What no one sin have you committed since we last met last week? Ooh. I'm not getting discipleship in that church. <laughs> what known sins have you committed since our last meeting? What temptations have you been met with this last week? And how were you delivered? And here's number four. This is what I'm talking about. What have you thought, said, or done of which you doubted or questioned whether it was a sin or not? What have you wondered about? So there's plenty of areas where, yeah, that's a sin, no question about it. But then there's other areas that all of us get into, and every day you are making these ethical decisions. Every day, every one of us are doing this, a hundred times a day. And there comes up things that you're going to wonder, is that a sin or not a sin? What I see, was that a sin? Was it Okay. And what this group would do is this group would listen to your answer on the first three questions, and then when you ask your fourth question, they'd be like, yeah, that's a sin for you. Or, nah, that's not a sin for you. Let me give you just a for instance. Um, nah, we'll touch more later. We'll come into something else a little later that'll explain that a little further. But the class then would help you know if what you're dealing with is a sin or not a sin. As a basis for these small groups, John Wesley began promoting then this simple little test to run things through, and this is the quadrilateral. These are the things that if you're questioning, did I hear God's voice? Is this a sin? Is this just me feeling guilty for something in the past that God's actually let go of and I shouldn't feel guilty for anymore? Is this what God's asking us as a small group to do or asking me to do? And they develop these four ideas. Let me give these to you. We won't spend a lot of time because they're pretty, duh, they're, they're, not, they're no-brainers. They're pretty easy. Number one, and this is the king. John Wesley did not hold all four of these equal. The first one is what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? If the Bible clearly says it's a sin, guess what? It's a sin. And it doesn't matter what your group thinks. It's a sin. And so you need to ruthlessly eradicate that from your life, okay? So what's the Bible say? And not just little passages, you know, here or there, because you can dance your way around the Scripture and make it say all sorts of things. You know, you can go out and kill somebody, and, well, the Scripture says, you know, because you proof text. You can't do that. What's the whole counsel of God's Word tell you on this particular issue? So what's the Bible say? And that's king. The next step is what does tradition tell us? We all live in tradition. Church itself is tradition. What we're doing here this morning is tradition. Do you realize that when Jesus was on the earth, this setup would never have happened? They would have never done tabernacle with you all facing me. In Jewish synagogue and Jewish tabernacle, we would have all been facing each other, and there would have been no particular leader. There would have been a group of leaders, but no particular leader. And so this is a tradition that we're following even here this morning. The church has a lot of traditions that's been passed on for years and years and years. Now, John Wesley was not a fan of tradition because he said tradition tends to break down and mess up. When tradition doesn't, though, then the John Wesley believed there's something divine about it. 
So if there is a tradition that's been going on for a long, long time and it's worked, there's a reason that goes beyond humanity that that's working. And so that's God showing up. So what's the church? What's the tradition of the church tell you? And here's another way to look at this. I am, there has been thousands and thousands and thousands of scholars much smarter than me and you that's lived this Christian life and studied God's word and hammered this out with other men and women through all of these years. And all of those people, I am not smarter than. Every now and then I'll get somebody, they'll come, up, they'll come to me and they'll be like, oh, I discovered a new truth from God's word. And I'll smile like, that's cool. I'm glad God revealed that new truth to you. But that's not new. Been around a long time. And if you think that you came up with something totally brand new that's totally off the rails and God revealed this to you and church history, all those smart people for all those years didn't figure this out, think again. I had a buddy back in uh, Oakdale and he came to me. He was a Christian guy. Some things happened in his life. He came to me and he goes, Pastor John, you know, I've been studying God's word and God revealed to me that hell just doesn't exist. It's a man-made thing. Excuse me? He's like, yep, I looked, and it's just really not there. It's not in the Scripture. And I'm like, well, what about this? What about this? Well, that's just, you know, man's take on it, you know. Surprise. 2,000 years of church history says hell exists. It's real. It's not a pretty thing. And yet he had this new inspired thought. And I'm like, you know, dude, if God didn't think, if, God, if hell didn't exist, God probably would have told it to somebody a lot smarter than you. Sorry. So think about that. 2,000 years of church history with smart men and women who's hammered out all this stuff for all these years. It's great that you're discovering things and we need to, but you're not smarter than all of them. So we need to look back at church history. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do worship? Why do we do communion the way that we do communion? Why do we sing as part of worship? What's going on? Why is all this happening? Because church tradition has shown us there's value, there's reason in that. So you look at church history. Second, thirdly, you look at reason. We do not live in a vacuum. Today we have all sorts of science, all sorts of research being done in all sorts of fields, and at some point when we're trying to really, now remember Scripture's king, we look at church tradition, now we're looking at reason, all the stuff that we're involved in in life plays into our thoughts and into our decisions, and so somewhere our gut is going to talk to us. Looking at everything I've looked at, knowing what I know, and seeing what I know from my family tradition, my church tradition, from the church tradition, what I know of the scriptures, I just feel this is the right thing. This is the right way. And so there is a level in which our reason then plays into this decision. And fourth, then, is experience. The last test for Wesley was based on experience. What has the church experienced? What has the family experienced? What have you experienced in your past? And this is in sync. If it's in sync with all of those things, then this probably is from God. It's him speaking. It's him talking to you. So what's experience tell you? You know what? We as a church, we have had some experiences. Amen? We've had some experiences. And because of those experiences, we've changed some things in the church. Leaders, board members, yeah? We've changed some things because of our experience, because of our tradition, because of what we know. 
because of what we understand. So experience comes into play. So that's one, this is, the quadrilateral is one great way to begin to know and understand. Can I, am I hearing from God, and can I trust what I'm hearing that it's God's voice? Well, does it line up with Scripture? Does it line up with Scripture? Does it match church history? Does it go contrary to the way the church has gone for all these years? Does my reason, is my gut on board with that? Um, is it, does it make practical sense based on the experiences that we've had jointly, individually, as a family? What's experience, how does experience weigh into this? Now, I want you to understand, for John Wesley, 91% of this quadrilateral is the Bible. It's based on the Scriptures. What does the Scripture say? The other 9% then is divided between reason, experience, and church history. So keep that in mind, okay? Because these three things may not speak as loudly, and you're like, oh, well, church tradition tells me, you know. Guess what? Church tradition sometimes in some places goes against the Bible, okay? Sometimes that happens. In some church traditions, they're like, well, that's really not true, are you kidding? It was written here pretty plain. That means what they're saying is not right, okay? So they're off the rails. Scripture is always king. All right, so that's one great way. That's a nice system to use to understand is what I'm hearing from God on the money. And John Wesley used this in his small group classes, and what was interesting is if the class couldn't figure it out, because sometimes they, they wouldn't be able to figure it out, and at other times they would have to go to the pastor or go to the elders of the church to help figure it out. Let me give you now a case in point to sort of work this through a little bit. Um, and I'm just going to speak to divorce. Wherever you're at on the subject, that's up to you, okay? But on the issue of divorce... If the Scripture tells us the divorce is never right except for marital unfaithfulness, is that always true? And should we hold to that strongly? The way the New Testament writers would put it, am I bound to that law or am I unbound to that law? Now, here's where the problem comes. Let's say that uh, I'm bound to that law. Divorce is always wrong except for marital unfaithfulness. Okay, what if your spouse never sleeps, never steps out on you, but beats you every day? Is divorce still wrong? They didn't break the law by stepping out on you, but they're beating you. Is divorce wrong? Okay, what if your spouse physically never steps out on you, but emotionally is checked out having an affair with some other guy, or your husband's checked out and having an affair with movie, television, internet, but never physically stepped out, is divorce okay? And if there is infidelity, does a one-night stand qualify as, it's over, I'm out? Or should there be some marriage repair done? Some questions asked. Some healing happened. You see how this plays out? We live this every day. We're in this every day. Where do we fall on this? Well, the Bible has some things to say about it. The church has some history with this in the past. Church tradition speaks into this. And sometimes our gut speaks into it. When I talked about the spousal abuse, probably a lot of you are like, oh, why in the world would you ever stay in that? Why? Because your gut's screaming to you, that's not right. So see, this is why these things are important. 
Can we hear the voice of God? And the church has given us, history has given us, and the scripture has given us some ways in which we can know the voice of God. Are we hearing from him? All right, let's move on a little bit. What if I don't have what it takes to do what God's asking me to do? So we're going to move on. You're now heard from God. You know it's God. It ran through the tests. Yep, God's asking you to do that. And now what if you're sitting there like, but I don't have what it takes to be able to do what God's asking I want to give you a word of encouragement here. If you go back to Scripture and you start looking through Scripture, God seldom, seldom invited anybody into his work to do what he was asking them to do that had the skills, that had the abilities, the position, or the right connections to pull off what God was asking them to do. Usually in Scripture, what you find is God tends to go to somebody who doesn't have the skills, doesn't have the ability, doesn't have the connections to accomplish what he's asking them to do. And there's a reason for this, because God doesn't want you to turn around one day and say, wow, look what I did. God wants humble servants who day after day after day, when they're doing what God's been asking them to do, has to say, God, if you don't show up today, I'm in trouble. I need you. And the church is the same way. If the church can accomplish all that it's supposed to accomplish without God never intervening in the life and the work of the church, then that is the church that's done the work and God wasn't there. And so God always pulls us beyond where we're at. And he usually asks, when we go through Scripture, he was usually asking people to step a little further than they were comfortable of stepping, a little beyond their skill sets, because it's in that area where God can show up and God can do some great things. Here's the deal. I doubt if you just accepted Jesus Christ, let's say in the last year, I doubt that God is going to ask you like he did Gideon to go to Hollywood, to go to Washington, and pull down all the men, monuments and stand opposed with your little band of merry men against all the powers that be. That's what he did with Gideon. And you may read that story like, oh no, God's calling me to Washington to start a, 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 a fight, to start a, a revolution. If you just stepped on, stepped on with Jesus, I doubt that. Chances are he's going to start here with little things. Still going to push you, still going to stretch you a little bit. And as you are faithful with those little things, Jesus said, I'm going to give you a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. But just step out and do the little things. Here's the deal. If you're sitting here like, oh, but I need to know the big will of God. Jesus said, if you can't be faithful with the little small things that I've asked you to do, there ain't no way I'm going to tell you the big things. That's going to be mine and my father's alone, not yours. But if you start being faithful in those small things, I'm going to start giving you a little bit bigger. I'm going to start asking you to do a little bit more. And so this leads us right into the next one. How do we get there? How do I know that God is speaking to me? And this is really simple. Practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect. The more that you're tuning in and learning to hear from God in the little things, the more you're going to hear and you're going to see God revealing bigger and bigger things to you. And the more he's going to talk to you. And what's really cool is once you've heard God speak over and over in this way, then all of a sudden down the road you're going to have no question, yep, that was God. And some of us are there. Some of you are still trying to figure that out. Is it the voice of God or not? And I'm telling, there are some of us that are here, and you're like, yeah, that's no doubt it's the voice of God because you know God's voice. 
You've hung out with him long enough. You know his voice. If you were to meet somebody and they were to become sort of a friend, but you just met them, and they called you on the phone, you may not recognize their voice. And let's not cheat. You don't have caller ID, okay? No caller ID. Phone rings, and then you pick it up, and they start talking, and you're like, have you ever had that happen? Somebody just starts talking to you, and you're like, who is this? Anybody ever do that? Good, I don't feel so stupid. All right. The church phone does not show who calls. It just gives a number, and I'll pick it up, and some of you will start talking, and I'm like, and it sounds really goofy. If you want to hear somebody's voice really messed up, talk on the church phone. It sounds horrible. And they'll, you know, somebody will just, oh, 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 and I'm like, and I, I play along, like, oh, yeah, okay. Oh, now I know who it is because of something you said, you know, but it takes me five minutes, you know. But we've all done that. Now, if you've been with somebody for a couple years and you developed a relationship and you become really good friends with this person, you can recognize their voice just like that, can't you? Have you ever been amazed? At how a mama can hear her child all the way across Walmart when that child isn't with them. Right? My baby! You know, and the kid, if it was, my mom would be like, should have stayed with me. And I'd be like, ah! you know, I'm screaming because I was playing with something and lost track of my mom. You know, it's fascinating though, because now as an adult, I've been with Michelle long enough. We can be at Walmart and I can hear her in the midst of all the people. Anybody else hate going to Walmart? Oh man, it's just gotten worse during COVID, you know, and nobody follows the little arrows on which aisle you're supposed to go up and down. So I don't care either now. You know, but we could be in Walmart and she can be like, you know, several aisles away and I can hear her talking and I'll be like, oh, great. I'm going to stay over here because she's talking to somebody from school. You know, I can hear her that far away. Or here's another thing. I can be at one end of Walmart and see her at the other end of Walmart and she's like on the phone like, where are you? Where are you? And I just don't look. I just stand there and like, and then all the... Oh, you know, and I can reckon, I can't see worth beans, but I can spot her across Walmart. Isn't that interesting? You see, the longer that you talk with God, the more that you get to know him, the more that you, you hang out and he's talking to you and you're talking to him. And, and remember that I stand at the door and knock and if anybody hears my voice, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. The more that you eat with the Father, the more you'll start recognizing his voice. And the easier that will become. Practice makes perfect. God is talking. And he's given us his spirit to lead and guide us yet today. And I pray that we will really start tuning in to what he's saying. That we'll really start, as a congregation, that we'll really start listening for the voice of the Father. And hearing how he's leading and how he's guiding one of the things, oh, I brought it up, no, I don't know where it went. One of the things I want to remind you about. In the back on the LifeSpring stories, there's a couple new ones up there this week. Read them. That's one of the things. But we're collecting stories this year, and what that's all about is hearing the voice of God. 
How has God showed up to bless me in some way? That's a life story. I saw God's hand moving in my life. And that's one of the first things when you're hearing God's voice is just starting to recognize it. And what we're saying is, please write it down. Write that life story down. We want to celebrate that. But we're also collecting God stories. And God stories, I'm a, I, I didn't want to set that goal too high. Because a God story is very specific. A God story is when you hear the voice of God and God's asked you to step into what he's doing in regard to somebody else's life. And I think we see God doing all sorts of stuff around us, which is cool and awesome. We need to celebrate that. But I think it becomes a whole different level when we come to the place where we're like, okay, I'll take that step. I hear your voice, God. And I'm going to step out in this. I'm going to do something for you that I feel you're calling me. I hear you calling. I've ran it through the quadrilateral. I've ran it through the test. I believe you're asking me to do this. I think it'd be pretty awesome over this next year to see what God wants to do with some of us. I don't know what he might do. He might call some of you, which was sad in my heart, he might call some of you to be a missionary somewhere. He might ask some of you to just become a missionary in your neighborhood and take your neighborhood on as your mission field. He might ask some of you to step up and teach the children's program <laughs> or help Debbie with that. Yeah. I don't know what God's going to do. He may ask you to start a whole new ministry. One of the things we do as a church, we're, we're open to new ministries as long as it doesn't have to suck all my time away. If God asked you to do something, he didn't, by the way, this is a little, little, little thing I will tell you. If you come to me and say, Pastor John, I feel God wants us to do X, Y, Z, and you need to do it. Mm -mm -mm. He told you, step up and do it. And he may ask you to do something. He may ask you to start a whole new ministry, to minister to new people. I'm excited to what, for what God wants to do tell us what he wants to do with us are you excited about that father speak to us as Samuel in the Old Testament father your servant is listening speak we're ready father I think as Samuel literally ripped from his parents' home, thrown into the duty of the temple to fulfill his mother's vow of being able to have a child. Living with Eli, who had two nasty sons and wasn't probably the best priest in the world himself. Living away from mom and dad and his relatives. Thinking about what his little life was going to be like living at this temple. And Father, you saw that little boy. You saw that kid. And you didn't see just a little kid in the temple. You didn't just see an, a, a kid who had no skill, no background, no, no family history with the temple. And in him you saw the major prophet of the Old Testament the man who would be your voice for the people of Israel before they had kings.
And in that quiet bedchamber, he began calling to him, Samuel. Samuel. Even when Samuel didn't recognize your voice, ran to Eli saying, Eli, what do you need? I'm here, I'm your servant, ready to do what you need me to do. Even though he didn't hear or understand your voice, you kept calling. And then finally came that moment after Eli's consul. I can still picture the picture book that my mom read to me. God, where you called again, and Samuel sat up, fully attentive, not sleepy. And when you called his name, he said, Here I am. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And he followed that motto the rest of his life. And every time you spoke, God, he sat up. I'm sure said again, I'm your servant. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And sometimes, God, what you asked him to do was unthinkable. It was tough and it was difficult. And yet he tuned in to where he knew your voice. And he acted upon your voice and your command. And fathers, we're learning to experience you. I pray that we will be like Samuels. That we'll be watching for what you're doing, looking at what's happening around the world and where you're moving and, and what you want to do with people right around us, with our church, with our own lives. We'll see your huge arrow of your will. And then we'll be listening for your voice because I believe you want to call us into your work. And may we be Samuel at that point. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Father, this week, speak to us. Reveal your will to us. Reveal your desire for us and with us. And may we be true to step out on faith, to take that leap and do what you've asked us to do. Not for our glory, not to look over our shoulder and say, look what I did, so that we may say God is good. God is good. So go with us, God. Speak to us this week. Reveal yourself to each of us, I pray. Amen.